anyone visiting with us, you're especially welcome. It's great to see you. Um, this morning, I have set myself a considerable challenge, and it's not my usual challenge of constraining myself to only speaking for 30 minutes. I conceded to my genetics long ago. <laughs> Rather, the challenge that I want to confront this morning is indeed the biggest challenge uh, to my Christian faith, and I suspect not just mine, but many in this room. And that is the challenge of suffering in this world. And if you do any speaking, you'll probably find that there's some times where you feel like you almost kind of pick the topic. There's other times where you feel like the topic kind of pushes itself on you. And obviously we know that God chooses the topic. Um, but I just know that recently there's, there's just never been a time in my life where I have been so acutely aware of the suffering of both those in my immediate circle and in the world at large. And, you know, maybe some of you like me had this naive and foolish optimism that when COVID came to an end, we would emerge to a brighter human uh, experience. But it seems that every day I spend in the clinic talking to patients, and as I speak with friends and family, the world beyond COVID is certainly not a brighter time for most. The spiraling mental health crisis in Northern Ireland, and indeed the Western, Western world, is simply terrifying to look at. And it affects people from all uh, ages and social backgrounds. And indeed, just last week, I heard of someone who I knew to be a happy, healthy, and outgoing individual, involved actively in raising money for mental health awareness, taking their own life without any warning. Our health service is in crisis, and this is leading to long delays in treatment for some truly awful health conditions. Our young people are being used as guinea pigs in the pushing of political and social ideologies, absolutely cut adrift from any firm family foundation to ground them, and this is resulting in skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, and self-harm amongst our young people. Let's not forget about the underlying global tension at the moment as Ukraine plays centre stage to a resurfacing of Cold War tensions between Russia and the US. Thousands dead already, millions displaced, and the feeling that things are only getting started. Look across the developing world and you will see hunger, starvation, poverty and death. Tyrannical regimes like the North Korean government trade the lives of millions of their citizens in exchange for a few more miles of range on their latest weapons of death and destruction. Here in Castlereagh Fellowship, we're well informed of the terrible price that many pay for their allegiance to Christ around this world. And that's to say nothing of just the day-to-day -day hardships and struggles that each person faces at the best of times. I want to start this morning by saying two things. Firstly, this is not intended to be a conclusive or comprehensive answer to the question of suffering, particularly when it comes to those individual cases. That would take much longer than 30 minutes and a much greater intellect than what stands before you this morning. Secondly, I have to admit that thus far in my life, I have been remarkably spared from much of the suffering that people are facing. And so I can't claim much by way of inside knowledge or personal experience. Instead, what I hope to do and what I intend to do this morning is look at some lessons that we can learn from Jesus and how he approached the problem of suffering. In so doing, it's my hope that when we ourselves suffer or when we seek to help those around us who are suffering, we can follow his example in this.
I would also add a third disclaimer at this point too. This has not been an easy sermon to prepare and I feel very truly I feel the weight of what I am about to share with you. So if emotion gets the better of me at points, I'm not sorry for that. I'd be more sorry if it didn't, frankly. I want to approach this problem by offering three H's for our consideration. And I know what you're thinking, he's been listening to too much Nigel. You're also thinking, isn't any Nigel too much Nigel? (laughs) But the difference is, my three H's don't have seven sub P's and 42 sub Q's to go along with them. (laughs) They say in Northern Ireland, you only make fun of the people you love, so I must really love Nigel. My three H's then for this morning. Firstly, the harsh reality of suffering. Secondly, how to help those who suffer. And thirdly, what is our hope in suffering? So firstly, the harsh reality of suffering. I don't need to tell you that the simple fact is everyone on this planet at some point and in some way will suffer. This suffering can come in a multitude of ways and often it's multifactorial and its impact can be devastating both individually and corporately. It would appear as we look out on the world that some people suffer more than others and it would seem that some people seem to have relatively little suffering to endure. But make no mistake, nobody makes it through this world untouched by suffering. But why is it this way? Why do we suffer and in some cases so painfully and so consistently. Many people in faiths have sought to answer this question over the years, and indeed it remains one of the biggest questions that every human heart will ask. Hindus and Buddhists teach of karma. In simple terms, you get back from the universe what you put out into the universe. Therefore, if you're suffering, it's because of something you have personally done, either in this life or a past life, and you must pay the karmic tab, if you like. This system, believe it or not, appeals for a number of different reasons. It can soothe an individual's conscience to know that those who suffer, suffer because they deserve it. Or it can settle a guilty conscience for knowing that those who suffer, suffer because of their own actions. Consider the Dalits or untouchables of India's caste system. It also gives some people a sense of empowerment that their future prosperity and the elimination of suffering in their life is in their own hands and they can shape it by their conduct today. Atheism, on the other end of the scale, teaches that the world is simply cold and indifferent. The suffering we face is nothing more than the natural result of selfish creatures on a planet with limited resources. Many cultures of the ancient world, and indeed many of our modern day, attribute suffering to the vengeance of their particular god or gods for the misdeeds of their people. They believe that their suffering can be reduced or prevented by winning the favour of the gods through a variety of religious practices. Indeed, this is not so different to what you might observe in many churches, even in our own country. I would suggest that Christianity's answer to the question of suffering is much more nuanced than any of these views. Because the reality is there are elements of truth in many of the current answers considering the problem of suffering. Christianity teaches that the reason why people suffer can be traced right back to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. You all know the story. God set a boundary, and mankind, in seeking to become like God, deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil, crossed that boundary. Consequently, God, as he had promised he would, cursed mankind and all creation. 
This is when suffering and death was introduced to the human experience for the first time. And so we see that Christianity teaches that sin and suffering are a result of human action, God's anger, and a cursed creation. (coughs) The question becomes even more complex because not every case of suffering is the same or has the same balance of contributing factors. Take, for instance, the criminal who steals a car is caught and sent to prison. His suffering and that of the family are due primarily to human sinfulness and wrongdoing. The child, however, who receives a diagnosis of cancer suffers not as a result of human wrongdoing, either personal nor parental, nor is this God's vengeance upon them or anyone else for personal uh, personal sin. It is the result of living in a broken world that is corrupted and broken, a corruption that has worked its way into the very genetic code of those who live on it, leading to terrible abnormalities in our physical makeup. And there are, of course, cases that blur the lines even further. Children born with heroin withdrawal or fetal alcohol syndrome, direct human action that leads to the suffering of someone completely innocent. Natural disasters that wipe away thousands indiscriminately. A moment's thought tells us that there is no easy answer to every individual case of suffering. Thankfully, we're not expected to find one. And neither are we to become preoccupied with trying to work out who's to blame in every case of suffering we encounter. I'm reminded of Jesus' encounter with the blind man. His disciples are quick to ask him, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' answer, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus wanted his disciples to stop looking for convenient ways to blame people for their own suffering, but to look to God to work in and through suffering. Note he didn't say, while it is day, I must do the work of him who sent me. He says, we, speaking to his disciples. Then he goes on to describe himself as the light of the world. What is the church, if not the body of Christ, still present in this world? Are we not called to be salt and light? Does that not by extension include us in this instruction? We are to be doing the work of him who sent Christ into the world. Jesus then goes on to miraculously heal the man to the amazement of everyone. So what are we to take from this encounter? That we are to go and heal the blind as Jesus did or tell those in wheelchairs to get up and walk? Without getting into a discussion on the gifts of healing and their use today, because I don't feel that is necessary, I think we can still understand what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Essentially, I believe he's saying, suffering is a reality. Stop trying to figure out whose fault it is. Stop trying to assign blame. This will only lead to inaction. Instead, start trying to be the kind of help that God would want you to be, because people are suffering and the time is short. If we are to take this call of Jesus seriously, it will lead us to our second H, helping those who suffer. As with the very nature and presentation of suffering in each individual case, the means of helping those who suffer is incredibly diverse, and there is no simple one-size-fits-all answer. I would, however, suggest again that if we look to Jesus, there are certain key principles that we can learn and put into practice that have universal applicability. The first thing I think that Jesus can teach us about those who suffer that is universally applicable is that suffering cannot be helped at a distance. Think about this. Jesus was God. 
He has eternally held all of the power, authority, divine glory of God. And yet in order to solve the problem of human pain and suffering, he had to descend his heavenly throne, take on the form of humanity, and stand shoulder to shoulder with us, literally. I really want you to get this this morning. Jesus could not fix the problem of human suffering from his throne in heaven. It could only be done from a cross on a Jerusalem hillside. There was no divine power that he could exert, no system he could put in place, no magic eraser that could simply rub out all the bad stuff that happens in this broken world. The only way that Jesus could fix the problem of human suffering was to take that suffering upon himself. The only way that he could right all of human wrong, divert the holy wrath of God, and reverse the curse of Eden was by paying the debt of sin that was owed, which we could never pay in and of ourselves. This he did by dying our death and rising again on the third day, the first fruits of the new, restored, and redeemed creation. It took Jesus to step into our situation to be any help whatsoever. All he could be from heaven was our judge. But with the incarnation, he became our brother, our helper, and our saviour. I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. I don't want to give anyone here a saviour complex. It's not your calling to save people either physically nor spiritually. Jesus' work of salvation and the healing of human suffering was on a unique and unrepeatable scale and magnitude. But we are called to follow his example. Not standing back as the disciples were keen to do, looking just to judge those who suffer or theoretically try and figure out who's at fault. Instead, we're to be like Christ. We're to step into their suffering, to get down beside the broken and seek to lift them back up again with the strength that God gives. Above all, we're to point them to him, the one who had every right to stand back as judge, but who gave up everything to get down in the dirt with us, suffering more than any human being will ever experience to pay the debt, absorb the wrath and reverse the curse once and for all. I believe this principle is universally applicable, but it will look very different in the various scenarios that we encounter in our lives. I'll be honest, I don't know how to counsel someone who is dealing with the loss of a loved one, how to help someone who has lost their job, comfort someone who has received a cancer diagnosis, or how to bring effective relief in the event of a tsunami. But I am sure of one thing. I can't help in any situation if I plan to keep a safe distance to remain unaffected. Tim Keller, a man who knew much of physical suffering and whose suffering gloriously ended a few weeks ago, said, you will never ease someone's suffering unless you're prepared to take some of it on yourself. By definition, someone who suffers will come at a cost to you. This might be financial, emotional, physical, or even just the time it takes to sit and listen. But rest assured, there will never be a helpful solution to someone's suffering that doesn't cost. If we're, able to be, if we're to be helpful, helpful in the way that God wants us to be, we must be willing to pay that cost. This will only be possible when we keep at the front of our minds the immeasurable cost that he has paid to deal with our suffering and to bring us an unshakable hope. We've thought about that this morning, and actually uh, I'm about to read from the Apostle Paul who understood this link between what Christ has done for us and how we ought to behave to others. And it's been read already this morning uh, from Philippians chapter 2. 
I'm going to read the, a bit of a longer section, but uh, you'll recognize some of the words from uh, 20 minutes ago. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ, as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at this point I must ask myself, do I have this mindset? Do I look to Christ, to his condescension from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, to save my soul and see people differently as a result? Do I consider every human being of infinite value as a result and therefore infinitely worthy of my time, my financial resources, my emotional and physical energy? Do I consider others more valuable than myself? If I'm to be truly effective in helping those who suffer, I will need to. If I am to be true to Christ's example, I will need to. But this is not an easy thing to do, is it? The selfish self resists this attitude at every turn. It asserts that we don't have the time, we don't have the means, we don't have the energy, we don't have the insight, we don't have the personnel. How will we ever be able to overcome this selfish inner self that cares more about self-preservation than helping those who suffer? And that rather conveniently leads us on to our third H, hope in suffering. As I've alluded to already, the cure for our selfish heart's attitude and that is unwilling to help those who suffer is to look to Christ. Further, he, or firstly, he is our ultimate example of how to help those who suffer. There has never been a more sacrificial example of love and compassion for those who are suffering than Jesus. Who being in very nature God, as we've just read, the occupant of the throne of heaven, <laughs> laid aside his glory, his majesty, his power, his authority, to become a human baby, born to a teenage peasant in a stable in a backwater town in Israel. This same Jesus grew to become a man full of love and compassion, healing the sick, bringing sight to the blind, touching the leper, and bringing strength to the lame. He freed many from the burdensome teachings of the Pharisees and exposed their cruel distortions of God for what they were. And as a man of no more than 33 years old, he made his ultimate identification with human suffering. As he was arrested, wrongly accused, convicted, mocked and brutalized on multiple occasions before being hung naked to die from a tree. And not just to die any death, but the ultimate death, the true death that was the wage of every sin, as God the Father emptied the entirety of his wrath upon the Son as if it were his own to bear. This truth alone is too great to fathom. And his example is simply too great to emulate in our own strength. 
And it's for that reason that I'm so glad that Jesus is not just our example. He is our living hope. Once again, I'm indebted to Tim Keller and his book, Hope in in Times of Fear, which deals with the resurrection and its centrality to our lives as Christians. Because as he spells out, Jesus is so much more than just an example for us to attempt to follow or some inspirational hero who died 2,000 years ago for our sins. The resurrection of Jesus means that he is alive today. He has taken his place once again on the throne of heaven and assumed all authority in heaven and earth, both now and for all eternity. What's more is that he has fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit or the Counselor who will live within us and teach and empower us to follow his example as we should. We're not instructed to try and combat our inner self by simply looking to Christ's example in the vain hope of motivating ourselves enough to help those who suffer in this world. That would never do. No, we are indwelt by the very spirit of Christ, the same Christ who is our example. When we're indwelt by his spirit and cooperating with his guidance and influence, we will find ourselves drawn to those who suffer compelled and willing to give of our own comfort and resources to help those who need it most. And so we can see that Christ is both our example to follow and the one who empowers and enables us to do so. But thirdly, he is our hope both in our own suffering and the hope that we hold out to all those who suffer around us. The death and resurrection of Jesus has conclusively proven that sin is paid for, death is dead, And the curse of our disobedience has been consumed by his righteous obedience. It is true that as yet we don't see the complete end of suffering and the restoration of all things. But we are not without hope. Hear what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2. By way of context he has been beginning his argument that carries through the book about the superiority of Christ to the other things of the old covenant. In this section he's been showing that Christ is superior to angels And indeed, even that mankind has been given a role above angels in the creation of the universe. He is talking about the hope of the restoration of the original order of Eden, that man was to rule over all creation and it would be subject to him. Listen to what he says in verses 8 to 10. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Did you get that? At present we don't see the full restoration of the created order. It is still very much outside of our control, and both we and the creation itself continue to suffer the consequences of sin's curse. But we see Jesus. Jesus, the first fruits of the bountiful harvest to come, like a single shoot that springs out of dry ground, a promise and guarantee of the new life to come. Once again, I'm indebted to Mr. Keller for his excellent way of drawing out the tension of our current situation. He describes it as living in the now, but not yet. Jesus is risen, death is defeated, sin is paid in full, the devil has no accusations to make against us anymore. When God looks at us, he sees us as righteous as if we were Christ. Our eternity with Christ is as secure and real as if we were standing before him in his direct presence today, and yet we are not, yet. For a time longer, we must continue in this period of the now, but not yet. A time when suffering remains a very real reality for many and a source of pain 
But why, you might ask? Why, when Jesus rose again, did God simply not bring the kingdom then in its fullness? What's the reason for the delay? Could it be that there are lessons to learn that can be learned no other way? Work for us to do. A relationship with our God and Saviour to develop and cultivate. A world of lost and hurting sinners that God has invited us to join him in reaching and restoring. Could it be that he wants us to learn to long for that great day, which because we see the resurrected Jesus, we can know with absolute certainty is coming, when the not yet will become the now in full. When we will stand before him, faces unveiled, sin fully put off, and he will reach out his divine nail-pierced hand and wipe away every tear from every red and burning eye that has wept so bitterly here on this earth. What is our hope when we suffer? It is Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. He is the one we look to when we can see nothing on earth but pain and misery. When we look at him, we are reminded that it will not always be this way. There is coming a day, a great and glorious day, when all suffering will end. And we can echo with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what hope can we bring to a suffering people around us? It is Jesus Christ. Who does not stand a safe way off from their pain and suffering, but who willingly came to this earth and suffered the worst men could do. Died a death unlike any human in history. Suffering the weight of all humanity's inhumanity and evil. It is Jesus Christ who rose again and now stands with open arms in the seat of all authority to welcome them into his family. Who promises to dwell in them now and give them the great hope of a day to come when all their suffering will end and his people will rest in his perfect peace and security for all eternity. Before I became a Christian at 17, the problem of suffering was the chief objection I held to the Christian faith. I was simply unwilling and unable to accept that both a good, loving and all-powerful God and suffering could coexist. Thankfully, I had good, faithful Christian family members, church, friends and teachers who helped me to examine the evidence for Christianity more closely. And I came to the conclusion that despite my reservations and questions, and I hope you've seen today many of which still remain, Christianity was in fact the truth. However, it was not long into my Christian journey that the issue of suffering was brought sharply back into focus again. At age 18, I went on a history trip to Germany and Poland. The main item on the trip was a guided tour of the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camps. We were guided around the camp Shown the, shown the train tracks where the prisoners were sorted, some immediately for the death in the gas chambers and some to be worked to death. We were shown the rooms full of shoes, glasses, human hair, the buckets where they drowned the babies born at the camps. And our guide concluded the tour by showing us photos of the many relatives that he had lost to the gas chambers or Nazi bullets on that site. And needless to say, even the most laddish of rugby lads on that trip was crushed into silence by the weight of evil perpetrated on that site. 
I put a brave face on it for the remainder of the trip, but I was rocked. I had put my trust in Christ. I was, as many new converts are, on fire for the Lord, but boy was the wind taken from my sails. And needless to say, my atheist friends were not one to miss me or miss the chance to kick me while I was down, dubious of my conversion as they were. How could you believe in a loving God after that? And you know what? I didn't have an answer. He may not remember it, but uh, a conversation with my dad helped to steady my buckling knees. Essentially, the conversation went like this. How could God? How would God? Why did God? Why didn't God? Why would God? How can I believe in a God? And so on and so on. And uncharacteristically, I remember my dad not jumping in until I had fully exhausted my many questions, objections, assertions, and everything in between. But when I finally did pause for breath, he asked me two questions in a roundabout way. Does anything that you have raised have any impact on the truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again? If that's so, what does the death and resurrection of Jesus tell you about God's attitude to human suffering? The answer to the first question is obviously no. Whatever I might believe about the terrible evil man has committed, and whatever suffering I or any of my loved ones might face in this world, it does not affect the historical fact that Jesus died and rose again. And if that is true, which it is, that Jesus died and rose again, it tells me something majorly important about God's attitude to human suffering. He cares. He cares so much that he has become intimately and ultimately acquainted with human suffering. And he has done everything necessary to assure everyone who believes in him of a day when suffering will stop. A day of restoration, recreation, reparation and justice. Those who have lost will gain more than they can ever imagine. Those who have felt pain will be comforted by the very arms of Christ. Those who have been oppressed and persecuted will be raised up and vindicated. And those who have oppressed, robbed, raped, murdered and destroyed will meet their judge in all his might and fury. I want to finish this morning by reading a poem entitled The Long Silence. I found it incredibly helpful in my considerations of human suffering and, and God's attitude and God's action. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in his world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of their groups sent forth a leader 
chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. They thought it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted and questioned. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be trialed by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Then let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die so there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a great host to witness it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.